Hey guys, gals, we, the, they, them, whatever makes you feel sexy. Your girl B back at it with another episode of Strip It Down. It's been a crazy past few days, um, weeks really, and if you've been following me on Instagram, you may already know that we lost one of our pigs to illness, and then right after that, our dog got hit by a car. So it's been a very long and stressful couple of days around here. And all that coupled with the Thanksgiving holiday, it was just really hard for me to find time to record. Um, which really stinks. But now that things have finally leveled out a little bit, I'm back and I'm excited to be doing another episode for you guys. So this one's going to be a bit different. I've gotten a lot of people asking me about how I actually got into stripping, how I auditioned, what all that was like, etc. And when I was thinking of a way to really explain all that, I kind of had an idea. So I fancy myself a writer. (laughs) I've always loved to write. I have even some of my small stuff has been published. But as with most writers, my ultimate goal is to one day publish a novel. So I've been working on that for probably four years now. And like this podcast, it's all about this particular subject. It chronicles my background and my experiences in the industry and follows my evolution from the beginning of my career until now and what that's taught me about love and life and just kind of everything really. So when I was thinking of the best way to recount my first audition in the lead up to it, I thought, why not read the first chapter of my work in progress and kind of give you all a glimpse into where that is going, as well as the best that I can recall the experience in a somewhat fun and theatrical way. So this is extremely scary for me and that I'm very shy about my writing. I get nervous when I share it with people, Um, but I hope that y'all will appreciate the dramatic, awkward, and enlightening, but very true story of how I started tripping. So let's strap up and strip it down. Who is Morgan? Is she someone mysterious, someone superior, someone worthy? She's a slight of a woman, small and unassuming, yet has an air about her, one that no one can see, but everyone can feel. Smoke fills the air, clinging to everyone and everything in the space, leaving nothing unscathed. But as she walks onto the floor, the thick air parts sheepishly to make way for her sweet smell, curling behind her like a cloud. She glides along, shoulders back, head held high, but eyes blushingly moving from the floor to the faces staring back at her and down again in a kind of coquettish display. There is no hesitation as she steps onto stage. The music begins and her body comes alive. Her alabaster skin glows in the dim lighting, beckoning those that dare to wonder if it is as soft and creamy as it looks. Long hair as dark as a moonless night cascades down her back, ending just above her round bum. It tickles the little hairs, causing small goosebumps to form in the most charming of ways. She sways gracefully, moving in an almost slow motion until she slides her way to the floor. She arches her back seductively as she slowly traces a line from her inner thighs to her breasts with her long nails. A suitor dares to break this trance and approaches excited but hesitant. Her eyes light up with promise as he slides a tip into her garter, lingering there for just a moment to savor the feeling of her skin. She makes direct eye contact and gives him a slow, warm smile, a smile that says, you are special and a flash of heat crumbs across his face as he slides into the chair at the rail, never taking his eyes off of hers. She's a living contradiction, the embodiment of an assertive goddess. Her body language says, come to me, touch me, admire me, but her eyes say, be gentle, be soft, for I am delicate. It is an intoxicating combination that both men and women alike have a hard time denying. 
Morgan is mesmerizing. She's desired. She's everything I wish I could be. And yet, I am Morgan. Morgan is agreeable and articulate. She is never at a loss for words and does not feel out of place in any conversation or around any person. She moves from topic to topic, fluently interjecting interesting perspectives and humor into any debate. She understands sports, politics, and people, but above all, she knows herself. And there is nothing more attractive than a woman who knows herself, her strengths, her weaknesses, and she pronounces them proudly to all who would inquire with no fear or apologies. That kind of self-insurance intimidates some, but for most it is enticing. Listening to someone speak with such conviction, such purpose, calms them, makes them feel safe and encouraged. She spoke as though their response was irrelevant. She didn't need them to agree or to disagree. She didn't need their validation, and it made her even more beautiful. But more essential than what she said was what she didn't say. She was a great listener. She did not just nod politely until it was her turn to speak. She listened intently, taking mental notes of important information, names, places, and insecurities. She was careful to look engaged and interested. She did not fidget or smoke recklessly. She made sure that they felt like her whole focus, and for some, that was the most valuable thing she could have done. Her beautiful body was alluring. All the gifts a woman could bestow beckoned from beneath her lace, but it was her compassion that men craved the most. Morgan was sensitive, eloquent, and refined, and yet, I am Morgan. The clock strikes 3 a.m., and like a fairy tale pumpkin, Morgan saunters to the back with the rest of the glittering jewels, leaving her suitors painfully grieving her absence. Harsh lighting and loud voices envelop her as she opens her locker and slowly peels off the torture devices that have been strapped to her feet for the past eight hours. She winces as they come off, pulsing and bruised, she hobbles to a seat to rest them for just a moment longer. The illusion is slowly unraveling. Perfectly styled hair is carelessly thrown into a ponytail as a baby wipe crudely begins to wipe the lovingly applied paint from her face. Layer after layer, she slowly peels away the facade that makes Morgan Morgan. Looking around the room, and a similar transformation is occurring with the other girls. Once a sea of perfect porcelain dolls, it is now slowly becoming real life. Sweatpants and flip-flops, bare faces and bad skin. These are the girls you see at the grocery store and never look twice at. Not because they're not beautiful the way they are, but because they don't demand it. They're unassuming. They are sisters. They are mothers, students, and moonlighters. They are everyone, and they are no one. They are Morgan, and Morgan is me. The key to success as a dancer is to be a fantasy. The misconception that a lot of people have is that that fantasy is the same for everyone. A tall, statuesque beauty with long legs and large breasts that lives to sexually satisfy at the drop of a hat with no real thoughts or emotion of their own. This is the easy assumption, the safe one. The assumption that does not challenge the general population to explore what attraction really is and to consider that different people derive pleasure in different ways. Ways that are not dirty, not degrading, and not shallow. The beauty of the strip club is that it's an endless, ever-evolving entity that harbors any and every type of comfort one could want. Some women are smart, some are insanely beautiful, some can portray personas that fill a specific attraction or need. They are bitchy or dismissive, innocent or dumb. An experienced dancer will learn how to read their customer and transform into whatever he's looking for. But regardless of this skill, every dancer has a persona that comes most naturally to them. Morgan was beautiful, yes, intelligent, unarguably, but most of all, she was empathetic and humorous. She could take someone's sadness, someone's need or insecurity, and turn it into validation. 
She could find a way to convince a hurting, unsure person that they were important, that things would work out, and that they were enough. She could do this with such consideration and so unforced that people would gladly compensate her, not for her body or her sexuality, although there, there were plenty that did, but for her friendship and her capacity for kindness in a seemingly cruel environment and selfish world. Facts are facts, and in this day and age, sex sells, and sex is cheap. Love is hard to find and getting harder every day. So when you say that a stripper sells love, you're right, except that everyone loves differently. Morgan is an exceptional lover, and so am I, because I am Morgan. Of all things Morgan was that I was not, of all the things she could do that I couldn't, her capacity to love was something that I had taught her. I had a fairly normal childhood, whatever normal is, Besides losing my mother in my teens, there was no glaringly obvious trauma that would send me spiraling down a path of wickedness. Just a series of situations where I had a choice, and some of the choices that I made were probably not the right ones. They were impulsive ones, youthful ones, ignorant ones that left me with fewer choices and more demands. They say it's not the problem that is the problem. It is your reaction to the problem that is. And in many ways, I agree with this. But it was my reaction to my problem that led me down a course that would change my life in the most polarizing of ways. It was a Thursday night. I can't recall the exact day, but the cool breeze in the air hints it was some time in the fall. I pulled up to my dad's house in a car that had to be jumped every morning. I sat in the driveway for a minute, counting the spoils of my double shift at the restaurant. $67. It wasn't great, but I had done worse. I tilted my head back and sighed heavily, savoring the last few minutes of solitude before I had to go inside and continue on to my next job as mom. I went in and greeted everyone, picking up my youngest daughter while I made small talk with my stepmom. After feeding my girls, bathing them, and putting them to bed in the one bed we all shared, I pulled out my textbook and started my homework. Once that was done, I got in the shower, turning the water as hot as the water heater would allow relishing in the scorching sensation, almost as though it was not just the dirt I was trying to wash, but the weight of the life I was desperately trying to keep going. After my shower, I handed over the money I'd spent all day making to my dad to go towards my room and board and assured myself that I would make more later in the week. After that, I sat on the floor of our bedroom and tallied up the bills, weaving the due dates into the calendar among the school assignments and doctor's appointments feeling more and more overwhelmed with every square that I filled. It'll be okay. It'll all work out. It always does. I assured myself. My relentless optimism was one of my greatest blessings and biggest curses at the same time. It kept me going in times of hardship, refusing to let people around me see me break, but it falsely portrayed me as unfazed when I desperately needed help. I was in the middle of a nasty divorce with a narcissist, one that I had built my entire life around since I was barely 15 years old. My incessant need to fix everything and everyone had gotten me in quite the codependent situation. And it wasn't until I had children, beings that actually did depend on me for survival, that I saw how unhealthy and vicious my condition had really been. But knowing the problem and being able to solve it are two different things. How does a young girl with two kids, no car, not even a high school education, and too much pride, leave an abusive situation and be better off for it. It had been a struggle, so many false starts, leaving, coming back, fear, frustration, exhaustion. As bad as my marriage was, it was familiar. It was stable in its instability. 
but like the frozen lake in winter, so solid and expected, eventually it is spring, and when it is, things change. Not because you want them to, but because they must. The final straw had come right after my youngest was born. After resuming work just seven days postpartum, I returned home to find my husband, four-year-old, and newborn nowhere to be found. Hours passed, and when he finally called me back, he informed me that I was overreacting. He had simply taken them tubing down the river, (laughs) them including my five-week-old premature newborn with an underdeveloped respiratory system, in the middle of the summer in Georgia with no sunscreen or life vests, etc., This was a relatively small thing in the grand scheme of poor decisions he was known for making, a minor infraction on the laundry list of inconsiderate and dangerous decisions he had made over the years. But blame it on the sleep deprivation or the hormones, I don't know. I just couldn't take it anymore. I got mad, and I never got mad. I wasn't allowed to get mad. I wasn't allowed to have emotions or opinions. They started fights, fights I couldn't win no matter how right I was. I knew better than to get mad. I knew that it wouldn't change anything, but I just didn't care anymore. So when the critique of his actions got us all thrown out of our house at one in the morning without even a bottle for the road, I wasn't surprised. And I really didn't care. I took this latest fallout as the catalyst I needed to just finally leave. I moved in with my parents, got a decent office job, and saved money to buy a crummy but functional car. Over the course of six months, I had worked extremely hard to regain the independence I had lacked for so many years. I soon had to trade my office job for waiting tables to accommodate my school schedule. I had acquired my GED and was enrolled full-time in college with a 3.8 GPA. From the outside looking in, I was doing it. I was pulling myself out of an appalling situation, and I was doing it with grace and determination. But to be honest, I felt like hell. The stress of trying to juggle so many things, trying to find the time to provide and be a good student and be a good mother, coupled with the unrelenting guilt I felt for having to rely ever so slightly on my family for help, was debilitating. Not to mention I was dealing with years of unexplored questions of self-worth, self-love, and insecurities. I may not have been living in a cardboard box with a needle in my arm and a pimp at my back, but I was still struggling. I was not in a good place. And as I sat there on the floor, staring into the bottomless pit of responsibility and uncertainty that was my life, I was finding it hard to believe that little old me, pathetic, mousy me, could ever live up to it all. In that moment of weakness, of pain, like a cruelly ironic joke, my phone dinged. It was my ex, taking the time out of his day to remind me what a worthless piece of shit I was, how he wasn't going to help me or pay me or even disappear. He was going to be there to never let me forget how worthless I was because I couldn't deal with him anymore, because I was stupid enough to think I could do it on my own, because I refused to let my daughters grow up thinking that that was how a man should treat a woman, because I wanted more, because I dared to think I deserved more. The devil's advocate would say it wasn't all his fault. Having himself been raised in an essentially fatherless, self-seeking environment, he didn't know any other kind of love. But it didn't change the fact that I did, and I wanted more. But he wasn't going to make it easy, and I didn't know how much strength that I had left. I don't know where the idea came from, or why I didn't immediately dismiss it as lunacy. But that night, when I crawled into what was left of the bed, and finally closed my eyes, well after one in the morning, a thought crossed my mind. An outlandish thought, a joke really, so much so that I laughed a little bit. A thought that the more I pondered, 
The more I ignored its initial problems, the more it made sense. The more it went from a thought to a choice. I had made so many bad choices. What was one more? Especially one more that could help solve so many others. I had nothing left to lose. No one left to disappoint. No one to answer to but myself. So my first executive decision with my newfound ability to govern myself was to start stripping. I know, I know. A real gem, huh? (laughs) But little did I know that that first decision would lead me to the ability to make so many others for myself. To find pieces of myself that I didn't even know existed. And that though you could spend all day negating the moral and ethical implications of what I was about to do, it in many ways saved my life. And that I dare someone to try to argue with me about. I had been fighting for so hard for what felt like so long with no end in sight. But I wasn't a fighter. I was a lover. So I wouldn't fight anymore. I would love. And love would be my salvation. It wasn't the money or the freedom or the power that stripping brings that would deliver me. It was the love. I already knew all the ways that love could harm, but I was about to discover all the ways that it could heal. And in the most unexpected places that you could find it. I was about to meet Morgan, and for better or worse, she was going to help me meet myself. Tools. A knife is a tool. Put it into the right hands with the right intentions, and it can do wonderful things. Help build a house, feed a family, but put it into the hands of the wrong person with the wrong intentions, and disaster and tragedy can ensue. Dancing is similar in this way. Go into it with the right mentality, with the right expectations, and for the right reasons, and you have a much better chance of getting something positive out of the experience. But in contrast, someone who is ill-equipped mentally or emotionally, or is motivated by the wrong things, can not only cause damage for someone else with a decision to enter that world, but they can greatly wound themselves. I, like most, had no idea about any of that, and no opinion of whether I was capable enough or not. All I knew was that I had made a decision, something in and of itself that was a big step for me. I struggled with conviction. Part of my newfound self-esteem depended on my ability to trust myself and make a damn decision and not doubt it. But I picked a hell of a one to start with. I sat in the same crappy car in the parking lot of the club I had picked, hyperventilating politely to myself. I had spent the better part of the morning Googling everything to do with stripping. I'm quite the overthinker, and after making list after list of the pros and the cons, what could go well, what could go wrong, researching all those things, talking myself out of it and back in, I'd finally found myself here. Still not really sure I knew what I was doing. It's not a big deal, I told myself. I like being naked. I look decent. It's not complicated. I can't possibly mess it up too bad. Looking back on it, it's surprising that the moral conflictions didn't even cross my mind at the time. I wasn't worried what anyone would think or how I would explain it. All my neurotic mind could think of was if I was going to fall flat on my naked face and make a fool out of myself. I didn't know the age-old trick of taking a few shots before to help me loosen up, even though that should have been obvious. So I forged on to face this challenge with my agonizing awkwardness in full display. I opened the gleaming mirrored doors, stepping into a dungeon of smoke and darkness. The light piercing in behind me blinded the door girl who was clearly accustomed to the gloomy atmosphere. She was in good company for the solid 30 seconds it took for my eyes to adjust and to be able to see anything. I stumbled over to her desk clumsily muttering, um, very intelligently, um, I want to audition? I practically whispered to the shadowy figure I still couldn't quite make out. Okay, I need your ID, 
and day shift or night shift? She asked impatiently, eyeballing the unfinished Sudoku on her desk. Um, what? What's the difference? I inquired gullibly. To this question, she sat down her pen and took a genuine glance at me instead of the casual interest she had before. The sudden notice gave rise to the reiteration that I most certainly did not understand the obvious difference between day shifts and night shifts. How old are you? She inquired critically. Twenty-two, I answered proudly, feeling quite old and mature. Uh-huh. And have you ever danced before? She replied while somewhat rolling her eyes. No, but I'm a quick learner, and I'm very responsible, and I started in, pleading my case desperately. Okay, okay, you want day shift then, she interrupted assertively, and with no desire for rebuttal. Yeah, okay, uh, whatever I need to do, I responded anxiously, not entirely understanding what that whole interaction was all about. She handed me a pathetic excuse for an application. Lines for a name, address, and criminal background were all there, but that was all that was on it. She called down a bouncer to escort me to the dressing room and went back to her previous engagement with little more thought to me or my exploits. It was my first of many indifferent interactions with employees of the strip club. The whole communication felt so odd and impersonal, almost transactional. I was not used to people in a seemingly service-driven situation being so apathetic. I attended bar and waited tables, even worked in sales, and the overabundance of concern and interest in those settings had led me into this false sense of comfort. I wasn't in Kansas anymore, and these people did not give two shits about helping me get to where I was going. It was many years later that I figured out that a lot of the people I worked with were very loving and great people, but years of working in a manipulative and cutthroat environment had left them hardened and untrusting to outsiders and newcomers. Like wounded animals, it took time and consistency for them to trust or even like you. My audition went as well as could be expected. Having witnessed thousands of others since then, I winced to imagine the spectacle I had made of myself. Standing in the doorway of the dressing room holding my Jansport backpack full of Wikipedia's how-to-strip starter kit items, I waited for Sherry to address me. A wild-looking woman with kinky gray hair and rings on every finger, an almost-finished cigarette clinging desperately to her parted lips as she frantically yelled at various girls to get on the floor and stop spraying that shit in here. Finally, she looked up at me dismissively, took a long, finishing drag off her cigarette, and leaned back into her chair with a deep, annoyed sigh. You 21? She spat, replacing her extinguished butt with a fresh one from a scattered pile on her desk. Yes, ma'am, I said confidently. She broke out in a cracking laughter, coughing and laughing at the same time. Ma'am? I ain't no ma'am. I'm Mama Sherry. And you look 12, but whatever. You got something to wear? Yeah, shoes. I remember finding it enduring that they all called her Mama Sherry, as she was the matriarch in a male-dominated environment. I didn't know that house mom was an actual job title in most clubs, but it is fitting just the same. These women can be the biggest blessings or the worst nightmare for a dancer. Giving support, advice, and a fresh tampon in dire times, or causing stress, alienation, and drama at others. Having lost my own mother some years earlier, I was short on maternal interactions and learned to covet many of these close bonds that I made with house moms over the years. Yes, I have what I need, I retorted after coming back from my reflective thoughts. Okay. Sherry started looking down at my paperwork. What name are you going to use? Name? I questioned with a long pause. Oh, you mean Dan's name? I realized too late as the annoyed expression had returned to her face. No, your movie star name, hotshot. Yes, your dance name. 
Unless you want to use your real one and deal with the crazies. She finished raising one eyebrow in impatient anticipation. Um, I hadn't really thought about it, I guess. I started. It was true. Of all the things I had neurotically researched about dancing, down to some of the most trivial things, I had not put any thought into what my persona would be. I knew I didn't want to use anything stereotypical, like diamond or candy. Not that there was anything wrong with that. But like I said before, different girls channel different energies into their hustle. And sometimes being like, yeah, I'm a stripper, I'm here for money, works best. But I knew I could not command that type of blunt self-awareness. So what could I do? Who did I want to be? I began to panic, overcomplicating the decision like I did all the things in my life, utterly convinced that a wrong choice in this instance could completely derail my entire execution. Did I want it to be close to my name so I wouldn't forget it and it would feel natural? Did I want something exotic and mysterious that would start a conversation? There were so many possibilities, and they all just felt bizarre. Brooke, I started, thinking that sounded normal. Girl next door Already got one, Mama retorted. Okay, um, Rosalind. Very Shakespearean, I thought. Nope, got a Rosie too close, Mama interrupted. Okay, well, um, I don't know. I began to get flustered and overanalyze every name that came to me. As my mind was racing for an alias, a steady dancer walked up to the desk with a calculated look. She had been listening in the conversation and had decided to come lead an artistic hand in my dilemma. She was older than most of the girls, than me, in her early 30s, slightly plump but into a very retro pinup kind of way. She had her curly black hair pinned to her head with a bandana and a bright crimson lipstick, accentuating her luscious lips. She walked around me in a circle while eyeing me up and down. She's pale and young, kind of French-looking, don't you think, Mama? She finally asked after assessing me for a moment. Yeah, I can see that, Mama exhaled with a cloud of smoke. Hmm, Colette, that's it. That'll do just right for you, she answered, satisfied with herself. Works for me, Mama said, writing it into the line on my application. Um, okay, yeah, that's good, I agreed sheepishly. I didn't have a better idea, and I didn't want to lose my nerve to audition over a name. While that would only be my baby stripper name, it did end up working out fairly well for me once I got my wits about me. But I discovered quickly that drunk men could mock you over anything, especially a complicated name. The helpful girl, I would later learn, was called Delilah. She winked at me and sauntered out onto the floor, straight towards the bar. Okay, good. It's all settled then. Go in there, change, and I'll put you up next set. Don't leave anything important out. I'm not responsible if your shit gets stolen. Mama finished with a huff and pointed me to the back of the dressing room where several women were congregated in various stages of undress. I'll never forget that buzz of activity, such a strange and alluring combination of events unfolding. Women were smoking, eating, talking on the phone, talking to each other. Some were completely naked, some topless, others already dressed out, none the least bit concerned about any of it. I was used to locker rooms and doctor's offices where people expected to get naked, but were still uncomfortable, shy, unsure, not here. The amount of freedom, ease, and general not giving a fuck was potent. I thought it was great, but I also thought I would never feel that way. And it was very apparent that I was an outsider to be assessed and tried before I was trusted to enter their sanctum. I timidly made my way to a corner, trying not to get in anyone's way. Hunched over, I tried to undress and redress, if you can call it that as quickly as possible. My ass pressed firmly against the fake marble wall, hiding it from view. 
So strange that in a room full of naked women, I was afraid to be one. I was afraid to be judged, inspected, vulnerable, not yet understanding that that would literally become my existence. But my job was not to avoid it, to shun away from it, but to embrace the prying eyes and dare them to find me not enough, dare them not to see my value. I stood there in my new Victoria's Secret bra and panty set, shaking like a heavy limb in a storm. The tags I had left on to return it if I didn't get hired were scratching into my flesh, annoying but not distracting enough to turn my mind from the task at hand. The flashing lights scanned the room with fleeting rays of warmth, but my skin had a chill. I felt so unbelievably exposed, like a fraud that everyone knew didn't belong. But I tried my best to look calm and pleasant. All the while inside my head I was screaming with anxiety. I watched the girl on stage as I waited for my turn to audition. She was yawning a little while leaning back against the pole, swaying her hips unenthusiastically to a generic 80s slow jam. She would walk the length of the stage slowly, caressing herself in various ways, then back to the pole for a small spin. At one point, she slid down to the ground and kind of paused there, bored for a moment, casually adjusting her stocking and checking her watch before slinking back up to repeat the process again. Strangely, I remember being so impressed. Even though she was clearly not trying very hard, she still made it look so easy. All of it, the walking in six-inch heels, the dancing to the music, the being naked, all of it was as normal to her as brushing her teeth in the morning. A kind of steadfastness I did not see often in women, even doing the most mundane of tasks. I was a nervous wreck deciding between which type of chips at the store I wanted to buy, let alone having strangers staring at my exposed body while the very seal of their approval was to be tipped. As I watched, Sherry tried to explain the process to me. Okay, so she would say and think for a moment, as though she was trying to remember herself. You're going to go up there. First song's fully clothed. Second song's topless. Third song fully nude. No pole work or floor work with your bottoms off. No bending over more than 45 degrees. No touching customers and no letting customers touch you. She spat the last part with a clear amount of resentment as she eyed some of the girls watching us. I tried to listen attentively and retain everything she was saying, but I was distracted by the rising knot in my stomach as the last song came to a close. After what seemed like an eternity and a blink of an eye simultaneously, it was my turn. All right, go ahead, girl, rushed Sherry. I froze for a moment, looking from her to the stage and back, almost in disbelief that I was about to do this. Okay, everyone, welcome to the stage. Colette, the DJ said encouragingly. Oh, crap, I thought. <laughs> that's supposed to be me. But that's not me. What am I doing? I can't do this, can I? It's like the moment before you get on a roller coaster. You're standing there next in line as the train rolls in. You've been waiting in line forever. You see the exhilarated faces of the people getting off, but still your stomach is sick. You are so nervous. You doubt this idea. She saw my hesitation and ushered me to the stairs. You'll be fine, girl. There's no one in here anyway. I nodded nervously in agreement as I climbed the stairs to the stage, gripping the handrail for dear life. I was always fairly decent at walking in heels. I wasn't what the girls would call a baby gazelle, which is when poor girls look like their ankles are made of rubber and have the hardest time stabilizing themselves as they walk, like a brand new baby deer trying to take their first steps. I made it to the top of the stairs and stepped onto the stage while grasping the pole determinedly. I had done dance and figure skating almost all my life. I just needed to think about that, I told myself, as I looked down at the stage, not daring to scan my surroundings and admit what was about to transgress. If I could pretend I was alone in my head, I hoped my body would just relax and do what I told it to. And for the most part, 
It did. The music started and I slowly began to make my way around the pole, twirling my hair around my fingers nervously as I paced back and forth like I had seen the girl do before. After about 30 seconds, I finally found the courage to raise my eyes from the ground and look around me. Sherry was right. There really wasn't anyone there. Well, any customers anyway. There were four dancers seated at the bar, only about three feet from my stage, watching me intently. It was apparent that they were discussing my performance casually among themselves, one nodding and shrugging her shoulders while two laughed, seemingly harmless agreements with whatever critique was made. Another girl sat at a small round table across the room with a customer. It was so dim I could barely make out their features, but their body language seemed approving and unbothered by my presence. I must not have been too bad. No one had burst out laughing or pulled me off a stage or thrown a tomato at me or any other ridiculous reactions we see in movies. No one really cared that much. I was just another girl on stage, dancing to another song. A thought that may seem hurtful, like here I am looking beautiful and really challenging myself to be brave and you don't care at all? You have no opinion, good or bad? How dare you? But then two things happened. As a reality that my presence was not important sunk in, it began to comfort me, to help me relax and say, yeah, why am I so scared right now? No one cares that I'm up here, but in a good way. No one has the time or the prerogative to judge me. And it also started a thought within me that sometimes we put so much pressure on what other people are going to think of us that we forget sometimes that they don't think of us at all. Sometimes, a lot of the time, it's not fucking about us. If I had never stepped foot in a strip club again, I would have been thankful for that revelation that day. One that was reinforced and refined over the years as a result of my time in the industry. But the seed of which was planted the moment I stood completely naked in a room full of strangers and no one could have cared less. So there you have it. The story of how I got into stripping, how my audition went, and a little glimpse of my book. I hope you guys liked it, or at least could understand it. I wouldn't say I'm the best narrator, but you can get the gist. (laughs) Um, Next week, we're back at it on track with a fun episode. You know, we're going to have some guests joining us on the show, so stay tuned for that. But until then, please be sure to like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the show. Uh, It really helps, especially when people um, subscribe and leave reviews. Also, don't forget that you guys can call to be part of the show, and I might feature your question or comment on an upcoming episode. You just got to go to anchor.fm slash bstripsitdown slash message and leave it there for me. Or you can email me at bstripsitdown at outlook.com. And then, of course, there's Instagram or Facebook. But until next time, drink more water, have more sex, and go the fuck to sleep.